So, Mike, how have you been? <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, you know, um, other than everything continuing to explode and cascade into a burning pile of, you know, nihilism, like, it's been a great week. I mean, like, uh, the air was clear here. Polls are, you know, starting, starting to resolve. And I think we're all starting to feel like we know a little bit more where things are heading. So, how about you? Yeah, I need to get something out of the way because before we continue with our, our second episode here, because I feel really bad that I forgot your birthday uh, last week, um, <laughs> your 40th birthday. And I did want to take the opportunity and play you a, a famous birthday song here from Germany for you. Alles Gute zum Geburtstag. Alles Gute wünsche ich dir. Yeah, so it does um, morph into the theme song of Alf there at this point. <laughs> That's even more personally appropriate. So, yeah, again, my apologies and happy right. 40th birthday, man. Yeah. How was the actual birthday? How, how does one celebrate the, the 40th birthday in, in these strange times? Yeah. Uh, so my 40th birthday was much different than my 30th, okay? So just for context, for my 30th birthday, I flew out to Berlin. Uh, actually, no, into Frankfurt, right? And then mm -hmm. met up with Yo. Um, and then we, like, it, I got to explore Germany and we went to um, Oktoberfest for my 30th birthday. In contrast, my 40th birthday uh, was a much quieter event. It was uh, mostly here in my apartment because the sky was on fire and um, we, uh, you know, had uh, coronavirus and that kind of stuff. I did sneak out with some friends and do like a nice hike in the woods kind of thing um, when the air cleared up for a brief minute. But it's a very, very different world. Okay. <laughs> it's a very different wow. world. <laughs> Bit of an outdoor birthday there. Yeah, that's right. You are listening to The Americanist Podcast, brought to you by Podbean and Riverside FM. And attentive listeners reminded me uh, to please this time introduce myself properly. My name is Johannes Ehrmann. I'm a journalist and author based in Germany. I also hold a degree in American history and might point out I'm a long-distance follower of the Philadelphia Eagles NFL team, who yesterday lost again. <laughs> Joined us every week... I am today by my dear friend and accomplished scholar, Mike Bayoki, over at Stanford University in California. Mike, very warm welcome again. You've been liking the polls recently? That's right. Looking at the, looking at the polls, like, yeah, I think in all the battleground states, except for one, Biden, uh, former Vice President um, Joe Biden's uh, ahead. So I think we know where things are going at this point. It's more likely that there's a landslide in favor of Joe Biden than it is that Trump wins uh, the popular vote um, mm -hmm. in even mm -hmm. like sort of the Electoral College. So I think we, in terms of the voting, in terms of how things will shake out that way, I think we have a fairly clear idea where things are heading right now. But 2020, man, <laughs> it is mm. the, one of the most unpredictable things I've ever seen. Yeah. And 2020 being, of course, um, the election year in the US, but for the whole world being the Corona year, we really wanted to dedicate this episode to the COVID-19 pandemic um, and the coronavirus, what it has done to our lives, how our countries have dealt with it. 
most of us, possibly not including the president of the United States, have had that one realization moment, I think. Uh, the moment when we were like, wow, this is serious. Um, and I will admit, for me, it didn't come until probably early March. But I wanted to know, when did it happen for you, Mike? Do you, do you recall when you realized that this was serious and this was coming our way as well? Yeah, you know, so I sit in an epidemiology department, so I was surrounded by some real thoughtful folks who had been tracking it and talking about it for a while. In you know, January, February, I was definitely aware of it. In late February, I got into a pretty bad bicycle accident, broke my spine, some ribs, stuff like that. And so I was in the emergency room, um, the emergency department, I guess. And it was really, that's probably when I realized it. Um you know, half the staff had masks on, um, but we hadn't sort of like fully gone into it. Uh, and I think Seattle had started to, you know, show signs and being in the emergency department and thinking about like how my lungs might be compromised from like the broken ribs and like sort of all of that uh, really started to make me realize that this is out there. And then I think Maybe it was only like two weeks later when we really went into lockdown recommendations. Uh, the, the my county was one of the first to to start going into. Did you go into a lockdown um, from your? You know, did your university send you home soon after? What did California go into a lockdown? Because I didn't follow it so closely. What yeah, sure. So Cal spots in California did so. San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I think it was a county by county thing for a little while. Uh, I think San Francisco Bay Area started to go into lockdown. I'm trying to remember. Maybe like LA did shortly after that, and then and then they did a state um, level lockdown, uh, and we were one of the first states to do that. I mean, like you had New York um, and Seattle doing similar, but it was very much a patchwork quilt of regulations and reactions uh, across the United States. So like other states had absolutely no reaction in the first couple months. And for you personally, like where, where you're based, what was sort of like the, the worst state of lockdown that you had to go through? Because obviously also worldwide, there was very, very different states of lockdown. And, and I, will, I will get to it in a minute, uh, how it was for us here. Um, but how was it for you? And what, what was like the, the worst state of lockdown that you had to go through? You know, I, I was pretty lucky, um, you know, from my own personal experiences, had a fair amount of like, you know, resources in terms of like, you know, I had my pantries full. Um, and because of the bicycle accident, I had sort of like ramped up stuff uh, when the actual lockdowns came in uh, and people couldn't like buy toilet paper and that kind of stuff. I was, I was fairly prepared. Um, I also like, I don't have a family um, that I'm living with. I don't have, you know, even dogs or something like that to take care of. So like the, the, the burn was fairly simple for me. Um, the, you know, the number, you know, so a number of businesses were closed. There were, man, I can't remember all the different regulations, <laughs> partly because I was like blitzed on drugs, like painkillers at this point. Um, <laughs> were you, were you on the same meds as the president was recently? <laughs> uh, That's a good question. I do not think so. I was not on any of these amazing steroids, which make me feel 20 years better, <laughs> like he is claiming. So I should have got some of those. Could have had your 20th birthday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A little time travel. <laughs> so yeah, it was, you know, like, luckily, I, I was in a nice position where I just ignored everything and was, you know, like healing myself. But yeah, things were starting to lock down. I remember sort of talking with some folks here where, um, you know, in, in the building that I live with and live in, um, and people didn't quite know how to react. So some of the 
tech businesses um, really were still, you know, fighting to keep their workers showing up because they didn't want to lose any productivity. Some of the folks were, this is not as, you know, this is like the common flu. Like that was, that was really the kind of like attitudes that um, people, people had. But uh, mostly if you look at like the data that was coming out later on, like looking at people, like tracking people's phones and that kind of stuff, very quickly, a lot of the areas here um, started to reduce travel fairly dramatically. So people really were sort of taking it seriously early on, which was really heartening because I think my first reaction was there is no way you're going to get Americans to um, <laughs> take responsibility for others and like sort of community levels. Mm-hmm. I was just like, we're just not capable of that. Like we're just too individual. And, like, and it really sort of impressed me to like watch what happened in New York and, you know, California and Seattle as, as folks really started to take it upon themselves to help out the, uh, by, by like sheltering in place, that, that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, that did not hold. <laughs> but early on, uh, that part of America responded in a certain way. And were you always uh, allowed to leave the house? Um, or was there like a full lockdown at some point as well? No, it never got to the point where um, you could not leave your home. I think it was like masks were certainly required to even like get out of the house. And there were a limited number of things that they were recommending that you could leave for. But, you know, I, I sort of remember that like exercise was always like allowed um, outdoor and there was a list that they would be adding to and, and uh, changing early on. And I think that's like really tough, like to not have clear protocols initially in this kind of situation, I think led to a lot of confusion and people feeling like, wait, I, you know, like, why is my life changing on a daily basis by some whims of this list? And so, but no, we never got to the point where food was getting delivered to people's houses or, or something like mm-hmm. that. I think that's a good point. I think this lack of knowledge about the virus and the disease initially, especially in the first weeks, um, I think that was really sort of the most depressing and confusing part about it. I, I do remember there was the first few weeks, so this is probably like mid-March, early mid-March uh, here, and we, we're being sent home, so we work from home. Luckily, we can, right? The twins are here as well, so we had to somehow, uh, yeah, live without daycare uh, for for several weeks. Um, for other people, it was actually up to three months here in Berlin that they had the, their small kindergarten kids uh, home with them, which, mm. and then, of course, they had to work as well. So that, that presented a huge challenge. Um, We, because my wife is a teacher, we actually, after six weeks or so, we received sort of like emergency care for them. So so the kindergarten mm. reopened for them. What did that look like? The emergency care was certain people got access? Yeah, certain people who were deemed systemically relevant. So mm. nurses, doctors, supermarkets, employees, I believe. Yeah. Um, so yeah. everyone involved in really the necessary things and that included education here and so yeah um, we got this after after a while um, but i do remember like life became very very small everything shut down for a while um, it's a quite lively neighborhood normally with cafes and restaurants and for mm-hmm. several weeks you weren't even allowed to open your restaurant even for takeaway so i remember yeah. these early weeks and you know in the evening You know, after having the, the girls around here, you know, all day, you know, two, four year olds, um, I needed to go out for a walk. Um, and I remember just walking through the park here and it was even more depressing uh, than just staying home, really, uh, for the whole evening because people were walking around by themselves in couples yeah. sometimes, but barely anyone was speaking even. It was like people didn't even dare to speak. They were all just... Yeah you know, so terrified by 
yeah, this this thing that they didn't know. And um, so it was really, really depressing, dark streets here. Um, this only lasted for a few weeks. And then sort of spring came, restaurants were allowed to reopen, um, at least for takeaway, cafes, the terraces were reopened at some point. Um, so a bit of normalcy set in again. And we never really had a full lockdown here. Um, right. We had restrictions, um, but we could always, you know, put the girls in the car and, and take them out into the right. fields, you know, or anywhere, you know, just walk around. But it was scary in the beginning. I mean, just that uncertainty, you know, like, is it just like a, a little droplet, you know, like that will in infect my entire family? Like, we just didn't know, um, you know, scientifically, we just had no great idea of you know what it was going to do. And, you know, we even at that, I mean, at that point, we didn't know how to treat patients. It was, it was a very... Um, I mean, <laughs> it's a little overly dramatic, but I remember one of my colleagues being like, ah, it's not like an existential threat. Human humanity is going to get through this. And I was like, could we, could we like talk at a little, like, could we talk at a little different level? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yes, there's no extinction threat here. Acknowledge that's the wonderful. anxiety that's going around. <laughs> yeah. But you know, honestly, like that was kind of reassuring, like at that point when, you know, like you were mm -hmm. seeing. Um, mm -hmm. Chinese response to it in Wuhan, like mm -hmm. sort of, mm -hmm. uh, they went through a very extreme lockdown, which is probably yeah. correct, you know, just given how little was known at that point um, mm -hmm. and how long it had been spreading without, yeah. So I'm, um, I'm very happy we didn't have to go through a lockdown yeah, like that with the kids. That was extreme. Um, yeah. Because I think for, for families, that would have been, yeah, very, very crazy to handle. Um, yeah. But Scientifically, I guess, makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah. I mean, to, to some degree, when you have something as novel um, and potentially as um, its ability to spread, um, you know, it's just so unknown and unconstrained at that point that um, that kind of stuff will happen. You'll probably see this again in the not too distant future. We'll probably have mm -hmm. something like this. We have have these like every once in a while, you know, maybe like five years, we have something like this. This is the worst sort of combination of both death and spread. Um, so the reaction also politically, of course, in, in Europe and specifically in Germany and the US was, was notably different uh, and continues to be. Maybe just two things that, that stuck out for me um, here. Um, and I think Germany is actually quite admired to this point, uh, the way we dealt with it, um, the way we were able to limit sort of fatalities and we, we can get to the numbers in a second. Um, but I think just two things stuck out for me. Like the, the one thing was that there was, a, a, from one day to the other, a new group of authorities um, that was rising uh, directly from the science world. And it was very encouraging. Uh, most notably, um, a leading virologist, he's, uh, his name is Christian Drosten. Um, no one knew him before. Now I think he has millions of Twitter followers um, mm. and he rose to fame, so to speak, in these early weeks of, of the pandemic with a daily podcast that he did with one of the public, mm. uh, public media stations, which had millions and millions of downloads. Um, and he basically, he was the voice of reason in a way for us. Um, I tuned in to him daily um, in the beginning just to learn about this, this virus because he was involved in, I think, the, the research on the SARS virus, which sort of preceded this yeah. one. Um, so that was, that was great to have someone from the science world to lean against. And then the other thing also that really I, I will never forget is 
our chancellor, Angela Merkel, uh, she's very hesitant to address the public like on, on, on TV or something like that. I mean, others like Macron and France is doing that all the time, every couple of weeks. Um, but she's rarely ever done it, apart from like the big, you know, end of year message and stuff. And so in mid-March, because people were still not quite realizing what was going on, she went on national primetime television and gave this address really telling people, you have to take this seriously. You have to stay home. You have to isolate to help each other out. And I remember the next morning, I took, I took the girls uh, for a morning walk, you know. And it was, a, I think, a Thursday morning or something. The roads were empty. It was wow. 9 a.m. on a Thursday. And I was like, and the, the day before, it was not like that. The day before, yeah. I had even wondered, people are still going to work. You know, we were already in home office for... A week or two, I think, um, but a lot of other people seem to just be going about their business, and that was just such a, a strong moment where I was like, "Wow, this is she actually has tangible power over people, yeah. uh, and has used this in a very, very good way." And I think these these two um, things or these two people um, really helped us deal with it. H- how was it for you? Like, how was how was? <laughs> oh man, I am so envious right now. Um, yeah, I mean, as you may have noticed, we took a very different path. Uh, so Bob Woodward, the historian writer, uh, just recently published his newest book on Trump, and in that, he's you know revealed that Trump was aware of how problematic this disease was going to be, how 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 COVID was going to be impacting the number of people, was going to be passing, being passed around, and. It also is clear when you line things up by the timeline that Trump came out and was intentionally downplaying that. And the sort of thinking right now is probably something along the lines of like, this was an election year, there were going to be economic impacts, that kind of stuff. So the message that was coming out was counter to a lot of good science. And it may be sort of like steamrolled over that. You also see a little bit of American thinking from some of our parties over the past couple of years to downweight experts' opinions playing a role here. Uh, What do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So, like, there's been a real pushback against, like, elites and, you know, the the role of experts and um, technocrats in government. And maybe there's a better strain of, you know, the, the thinking goes, maybe there's a better strain of people who should be leading rather than the, the people from the ivory tower, the people who are disconnected from the real world. There's, there's a sort of a real America that has um, good knowledge on the, you know, of, of how life really works, which is, it's obviously different than, you know, like the way you folks did, like doesn't, um, Merkel actually has like a PhD and (laughs) yeah, no, but not even Merkel, but I mean the, the, the virologist, Professor Drosten that I just managed. So, so you're saying Americans or a large portion of, of Americans would basically also not have listened to our guy. I mean, it's really hard to know. I mean, if you change Mm -hmm. something, if you, if you, if, um, if this had been coronavirus 18 so it emerged in the fall of Hmm. 2018 and it was not an election year and it hit Hmm. us during you know 2019 could things have been different yeah i mean like it's possible that what trump's party you know like his platform would have been different is like well you know we'll take an economic hit now but we'll lead things through um, rather than sort of like, you know, through this year and then we'll reemerge in 2020 looking good. It's possible that they would have landed on a different message. Um, I think maybe they were going to try to white knuckle uh, things through. Um, so, 
yeah, I mean, there's a lot of politics that is sort of like wrapped up in how some of the messaging came out. And this is all conjecture, right? Like we're looking at like what's emerging from Bob Woodward's tapes um, and the messaging that was happening behind closed doors versus what was happening publicly. So maybe the election had a role. Thinking about the economic implications had a, had a role. But yeah, there was, I don't want to uh, diminish the idea that like, yeah, there's, there's a strain of American thinking, political thinking that says something like, we should be skeptical of experts. Experts don't own everything. And that's sort of, you see it in climate change denial and you see a strain of it here with how we started to respond. I don't think it's like deeply American. Um, yeah. I, I think there's like, if you had a different leader in place or a slightly different time uh, timing of this virus, we might've seen a really different American response. I was about to say, I mean, we do have a, um, a portion of deniers here as well. Um, and they've, they have been quite visible for, for a while. They had demonstrations here in the capital in Berlin. And it's a very, very crude mix of sort of conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, even some new agers, you know. Um, and of course, a lot of sort of hardcore right-wing and neo-fascist people. Hard to put numbers on them. You know, it's like sort of a few ten thousand showed up, I think, for for the demonstration here. Um, but through the social media and and also you know classical media, they've been become quite visible. So where is this coming from, and and how large of a part of the American population is is this group? Man, we're we're. <laughs> We're in real speculation. Like, I, I don't, I don't know a lot of that. Like, so um, you see strains of it, you know, I've been following it mostly because just watching like sort of the climate change denial um, there, maybe it's due to some economic forces. Maybe it's a little bit more lucrative to, you know, say that like carbon shouldn't be managed in a certain way. There are certain best. It's a lot less clear to me why someone would hop on uh, some science denial in this case. It just seems like there's not a lot of great gain. Again, maybe for a political party that's going up for major re-elections this year, maybe there's some like keeping the keeping things very smooth. Um, but I don't know. I mean, like there was <laughs> some really weird strange. I don't know. Did you guys get like, I'm going to mess up the name, but HCQ, hi uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, was this like miracle drug, miracle cure. Um, and which Trump promoted excessively. Right? right? What? Like, where did this come from, man? This is for managing like lupus or managing like, you know, or dealing with like malaria. It is, it is far from clear that this is going to have some miraculous cure. So like, yeah, I mean, I think there was some weird stuff happening around trying to get therapeutics off the ground quickly and trying to reassure the population. Um, and I guess experts, you know, <laughs> as you can probably tell, like, tend to be a little skeptical, a little bit slow moving, but it would have been nice to have a unified voice of reason that was like reassuring, helped us level set and deal with something that a lot of us just haven't done, right? Like, you know, like we haven't thought about What do we do during a pandemic we hadn't prepared for? It. It's not one of like here in California, we talk about earthquakes and we deal with like forest fires. We do not think about, mm. you know, like uh, major infectious disease. And it just would have been nice mm. for a couple of weeks to have really clear mm. voices step up and do that. Mm. And I wonder mm. if our political system had been better at that point, um, if, if they would have mm. done some boosting. Like, I wonder how you folks ended up with that particular scientist, um, you know, talking, mm. right? Like, was it just accident? Like, how does that emerge? Um, well, so he has he has 
no official function, right? Yeah. So he's not he's not a Dr. Fauci, um, right. who has been like of official sort of government consultant, um, uh, medical consultant. Right, he's right, actually or, got roles inside of the NIH. He's been an infectious disease expert here for a long time. So he, you're mm-hmm. right. He's he has an official role. That's like, official capacity. Yeah, yeah and um, so that that was clearly not the case here. I think he was consulting the government, sort of. In the beginning of the crisis, um, but um, yeah, it was just kind of he was elevated to that to that role through just just a podcast, yeah. really. I mean, uh, then at some point he also gave some some big interviews in the in the newspapers uh, and so forth, and you could even tell that he was struggling with this sudden fame as well. He was yeah. also talking about it that sure. his messages would get distorted and that he would prefer only to talk through his podcast because there he could lay out the scientific principles in their full length. Mm. Um, and he got into a, a fight with uh, the biggest tabloid here, the Built, Built newspaper, uh, because they quoted him out of context um, for, for a study that he did. So yeah, it was really, really interesting. Uh, and I've never witnessed any anything like that before uh, in normal times, so to speak, yeah. that, that one person from a f- field of expertise um, and really who clearly was, yeah, just one of the leaders from his scientific field and that qualified him and nothing else, not the way he talked, not the way he looked. Mm. And that was really, really powerful, I think. I don't know. It seems like I'm talking about the absolute polar opposite to your presence <laughs> <laughs> from like a personal standpoint, right? I just realized this because, I yeah. mean, Trump for me is just, you know, a guy who's only talk and, and looks whatever, you know, like, just That's I don't right. know this video from the other day where he's like his face was even more orange than usual. <laughs> his his hands were so pale. It's like it's a freak show. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot like you're saying, which is it was a, like in the delivery and sort of like there wasn't any substance behind a lot of what was being said. We were seeing, especially I think in the academic community, uh, you folks turn to the epidemiologist, and so I was aware that you folks had that voice and. Uh, we talked about, so again, I'm in an epidemiology department. We talked about a couple times, like, could we get that going? We Did we have the right, like, sort of setup? And, you know, nothing ever came of it. Um, and I think, like, that's one of our failures. And I really worry about that. I, I think one of the major takeaways I think that needs to happen here is some sort of leadership inside of academia needs to figure out how it will respond, um, you know, during these kinds of things in the future. Maybe moving away from the response that the Trump had to the, um, to the virus um, and the response in millions of Americans uh, throughout a lot of States. How do you explain that? How do people still, I guess, sometimes not, realize the seriousness of of this virus um i'm going to do an economic analysis of this you know i I think there's some social stuff and we can circle back that and i've even like sort of said some stuff about Mm -hmm. like our ideas about individualism and stuff but we don't have a safety net you know a lot of like i I don't Hmm. think people realize how fragile like we have Hmm. made people's lives here so if people were to go for two weeks, three weeks without a paycheck or a source of income, like they will lose a ton. Um, they will like be un- unable to mm-hmm. you know, pay their rent. They will be unable to. And we've also, um, the other thing is like, we also tie our healthcare, our health insurance to our employers. Mm-hmm. 
And so if your company folds, it's not clear how you're going to be having insurance for, you know, the next six months. You know, we do have some stopgap patchwork stuff. It gets really complicated. You know, there's been, uh, you know, some major improvements over the past, you know, seven, eight years and being able to access it. Mm -hmm. But largely, a huge percentage of uh, Americans just don't think about their health insurance except through how it's uh, tied to their employer. So for us, there was a real economic incentive for a huge number of us to you know, go back to work as soon as possible and get that up and running. And that was definitely something that also struck me because I did follow the, the, the American media, also especially in the, these first weeks of, of this unfolding. Um, and also a lot of German media picked it up because this is always like our biggest reference point. I've, I've said it last week, um, you know, the US, you know, politics, culture, history, everything is sort of, you know, a focal point also here. Um, and just this curve that was unbelievable, um, you know, of people filing for unemployment, um, people getting laid off. Um, and in a lot of European countries, there was more of like a furlough scheme. Um, you know, you went into part time, and the, and you know the government would pay the rest sometimes of your your salary. But you're saying so a lot of people act actually didn't even have a chance. Yeah, I mean, like the I believe it's Florida. Its system for getting unemployment benefits has been sort of designed to be a little bit frictionful. So it's not an easy, trivial thing. You give them your name, you get the, the money showing up. Um, and some of that's, you know, based on sort of ideas of like, how do you get people to make sure they stay in the workforce and not be lazy kind of stuff. Like um, hmm. that system got overwhelmed rapidly. <laughs> uh, the sort of frictions in place, like didn't allow a quick transference of government support into infusion of government support into um, these kinds of situations. Um, so yeah, uh, there are some real, there are already stories right now of people having major issues and bankruptcies and that kind of stuff. We did do a fairly large, and I'm trying to think, I think it's like happening sort of roughly now-ish where, so there were some cash transference, um, government support going into the community, in, into people. Um, I think that ran out maybe about a month ago. Mm. Um, and then there's also laws about like being able to evict people and that's, that's mm. coming out mm. right. Uh, that's going out right now. And then we also have uh, a real serious debate right now in our Congress about, are we even going to do another infusion of support yeah. and what's that going to look like? And that's being sort of held up due to sort of political mm. um, back and forth. Mm. So the role of government here is a little bit complicated mm -hmm. and we have a, we have a view uh, that again, <laughs> that maybe government involvement causes more problems than it mm. solves. And right now, in the situation where probably government is best suited to be the one that solves the problem, we just don't have it. There was an interesting term that you used before, uh, which was individualism. And it seems to me, when I listen to you, um, that apparently the U.S. government, uh, or also maybe this, the state governments, um, handed a lot of responsibility just basically back to the individual people and you know, let them figure out a navigation through this crisis. Is this like a fair um, assumption? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess like, I don't have any other systems to sort of do a great job comparison and comparing here, but like, yeah. Uh, so the, the federal government was doing some coordination, but it was really pushed explicitly to state level governors and uh, to, to try to manage what was happening locally. And then I think we don't have a lot of great support mechanisms 
that were supporting all the way down to the individual. So yeah, a lot of us had to sort of figure out what we would be doing in order to mitigate issues. Um, I think that kind of thinking, the sort of an individual manager, an individual innovate, and we don't, as a group, um, we're not going to tell you what to do because you have the best sense of what's, what's right for you. That fails <laughs> in an infectious disease. Uh, infectious disease has a lot of implications where my actions really impact you uh, and can really impact the entire group. And if we act in a collective group oriented way, which is like language that might be potentially scary for some Americans, um, we have a much better reaction and we don't even have a great language or the language of sort of working as a group for our collective benefit has been so made so toxic here that having those kinds of mm. conversations just didn't like it, it was, we didn't have that option because that language has been so mm. polluted mm. here. I think we have to come back to Trump for one second um, because I'm just remembering this <laughs> this episode that I read. I don't I don't know if it's if it's true uh, or if it's fake news um, that he apparently considered after his bout with COVID uh, when he had this first oh, no. you know public address there at the White House that he would wear a Superman <laughs> T-shirt underneath yes. his actual shirt and would rip it open and I think it was reported um, by the mainstream media yeah um, <laughs> yeah no I think it was even, and, but yeah. I forget which one it was but I mean first of all wow <laughs> um, so embarrassing oh god se second of all so is this all also the way he's been handling his own illness now I mean this is so sort of like a larger than life masculinity yeah. or like a strong man image that he's portraying there is like like as if he's like the the all-american male or something i yeah. mean what what is going on here so oof, that's <laughs> i just remember i'm a statistician and not like a <laughs> like real professor of religion or something or semiotics <laughs> or i don't even know what would handle that but yeah i mean like yeah what do you, what do you want me to say that that dude is a lot about message and the showmanship and uh, in a way that is not great for this kind of pandemic, he likes to have quick, clean solutions and to emerge after a few days of a struggle and then to valiantly show yourself triumphing over it and have that like shot of the Superman <laughs> say like would just be a very clean, nice narrative to have in a, in a mm. situation that's really not like that at all. So, mm -hmm. Oh man, it was so embarrassing and so believable. I mean, I don't, I don't yeah, mm. I don't even know what to say. Oh God. <laughs> Is he maybe the, um, the guy, and I always have to think of that, that great scene in the life of Brian movie, uh, when he's addressing this huge crowd, um, and, and he's, he's reassuring him, you know, you're all individual, you, you, you're all different. And then this one guy in the front row goes like, I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe this yeah, is, no, that's, that's this is what Trump is thinking. Maybe. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get like, <laughs> I'm going to go overboard if we talk too much more about Trumpism. <laughs> I'm going to start slinging. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, actually, you know what? Let's talk about this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so a couple weeks ago, a number of us Stanford professors wrote a letter um, talking about a person who Trump decided to bring in. He's a former Stanford professor of neuroimaging. And we wrote a letter sort of expressing some concerns. Uh, there's a number of experts on this uh, letter. 
And we received a letter from his lawyer um, telling us that they were considering suing for defamation. I'm not going to talk much more about it other than to say that this exists and that we are under threat of defamation from a political figure here in the United States for expressing our expert opinions in a public forum. Um, you can imagine that this is a real thing here right now. And in a mm -hmm. way that I'm unaware of mm -hmm. anybody uh, in previous administrations, certainly during my mm -hmm. lifetime acting. And so there is a, <laughs> though I'm laughing a lot here, like I have a deep anger uh, about how the United States has reacted to some of mm. what we're seeing, where it feels like a lot of important voices have been intentionally silenced um, mm. and put to the side. Mm. Um, I, uh, I'm a little scared, you know? Um, I think having a legal document show up saying that they will pursue us um, is a scary thing. Mm. Um, especially when we're trying to help um, and we're trying to lay out what what kind of principles we see that might help navigate out mm. of, of this kind of environment. But I think that's, you know, in part, I just want to say like, that's part of why I want to do this podcast with you is mm -hmm. to make sure that some of these ideas get out there and also mm -hmm. show that like this particular administration, this form of government won't always be able to silence mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we can also uh, make sure to um, link to the document as well from yeah. our from our Twitter account. Yeah, yeah, and you can follow us at Americanist Pod at Americanist Pod Pod. So before we close here, you're the expert. You're the epidemiologist. You, you might be able to tell me, uh, and I know I think my my wife also wants to know <laughs> when when is this ever going to end. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, honestly, it's going to circle for decades. It's, it's not clear it hmm. will actually ever get to a point where we eradicate it. You know I mean? But how are we, be, how are we going to live with it? Sure. How will we, that's, that's the right way to frame it is uh, we're going to have to come up with strategies for that. And so the therapeutics are getting better. Um, I don't want to sound uh, like overly optimistic. Like we have like cures or anything like that. Uh, therapies have come a significant way since this started. So since March, we've we brought online new uh, new ways of just even like managing patients in you know like putting them on their sides or you know like simple stuff about like how how we're managing patients. That also includes medications, being able to identify people earlier, that kind of stuff. Before I can talk about like what we're going to do all the way, I have to like also say like I think we're I'm, I'm, we're still probably. In, not completely understanding the full implications of the virus. Mm. So I think there's some stuff about dis the destructive uh, uh, ability it has for the cardiovascular system. Um, there's mm -hmm. probably some serious stuff that we're not aware of yet about how it's hitting the, um, um, the neurological system. Plus cases are rising again. I mean, in Germany, they've been yeah. rising since June, basically uh, hit a new, new record uh, infection rate since June, uh, just a couple days ago. So we're not through at any rate. No, no, we're not. No, we're not at all. And I think if we're going to talk about like, when do we get out into the, you know, back to what it like sort of looked like, uh, you know, the world sort of like runs like normal. I think we have to sort of think about what, what are the risks that we're assuming? And I think we're getting close uh, to understanding how to deal with it in its, this virus in its acute phase, how to make sure that people don't mm -hmm. die immediately on the order of like mm -hmm. weeks. Um, I do worry 
that we haven't, like, I just want to say this again, I do worry that we haven't totally figured about all of the long-term mm-hmm. impacts that this virus has on people. And I think there are people like mm-hmm. suffering from that. Mm-hmm. All that said, um, there is an important other part of this case, which is like, we do need to return to normal. Um, families do need to be able to like have their kids, you know, socialized and we need to get, mm-hmm. get back to work and that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I would not be surprised if things were looking very close to normal this time next year. I do think that like, you know, we'll probably start seeing some good vaccine results mm-hmm. like early, you know, springtime. Um, sort of like April ish, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, we'll probably start seeing like things really start to roll up, uh, roll out and ramp up, um, vaccine, you know, vac- vaccinating the world's going to be an extremely interesting logistical mm-hmm. challenge, production and deployment and rolling that out is going to be very mm-hmm. complicated and very social, uh, sorry, not socially politically mm-hmm. fraught. But no, the virus is always going to circle. Whereas, unless we decide to, like, you know, um, completely eradicate it, it's going to—it's just going to mm-hmm. continue to circle. So, yeah, it's the two-pronged approach where we're going to probably immunize everybody going forward in the way that we do with like measles and, and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and then uh, we'll just get better and better uh, therapeutics for it. So, I would not be surprised if, like, roughly this time next year, uh, it feels like we've largely returned mm-hmm. to normal. We agreed that we would always try to end every episode on a bit more positive note. Um, it's kind of difficult with a topic like that, um, but nevertheless. So, what what would be the, like the one good thing, if any, that the pandemic um, has you know meant for you personally? Mm. I mean, like you know, it's talking to you. I mean, like, you know, connecting mm-hmm. and taking time to really think about what my friendships, mm-hmm. you know, have been like and uh, how to build relationships and maintain them when it's not just immediately around me. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about who I care about. Uh, it's just giving you that kind of time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know what pretty much the, the same thing that I wanted to say as well is, um, I mean, it's interesting because this pandemic, and I've I've talked a little bit about it. You know, everything shut down, and and you know, and we were. I was sort of in the early days, frantically going back and forth. You know, buying like an indoor trampoline because we didn't know if you know the kids would be locked in here. You know, twenty three sure. hours a day and only allowed on small portions. You know, everything seemed possible in the beginning. <laughs> um, sure, totally. So, and then for a long time. I said to a lot of people, I, I feel like I'm living the life of my grandparents again, like sort of without distractions, mm. sort of just core family, um, you know. And at the same time, it brought a great sense of purpose with it, right? You know, protect your family, don't get infected, you know, wash your hands. Um, but at the same time, you know, that it made life small, it made it also large in a way. And you just touched on it, on this mm. um, because it... I realized just how global our network has really uh, become. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, we talked, we reached out, uh, friends in Singapore, in Australia, and we shared. You know, how is it for you? You know, hang in there. You know, how is it for you? So, in a way, this was really for me uh, the greatest thing. Uh, at the same time, you know, sort of we as a family got got much closer together, and and this sort of global family also got closer together weirdly at the same time as we were all disconnected from each other in a physical sense yeah right that's right yeah so a lot of distractions that we sort of build up in our lives i think got blown to little bits right like oh yeah you know like the patterns that we sort of built 
up and accumulate, mm. like those all got mm. shed really quickly and it gave us a time to sort of reevaluate. And I, I really love the way that you framed that about the international webs, mm. but, but also like just like the local important webs, mm. like it gave us a time to sort of reorient. Mm. And yeah. yeah. I, I feel like that's been a real gift. I think that's a pretty positive note to end on. This was yeah. the second episode of The Americanist from Berlin to California and back. Thanks so much for joining me again, Mike. Absolutely. And um, we'll talk again next week. Have a great day. Great start into the week. <laughs>